0: The, unites the human race. Feel free to introduce yourself.
1: Okay, so I'm Christian Hogsberg. Um, I teach history and politics at University of Brighton in the UK. Um, and I'm author of um, CLR James in Imperial Britain, which is about James's life in the 1930s. Um, I've also edited some other uh, collections related to CLR James's work.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much. Um, so just to begin, I know this is kind of a monumental task, but for anybody who's listening who's unfamiliar with C.L.R. James, how would you introduce him or at least uh, attempt to, since there's so much to say about him?
1: Yeah, there's so much to say. And thanks for yeah, invite, inviting me to, yeah, to talk. Um, so C.L.R. James was born 1901 in colonial Trinidad part of the British Empire, so he was a um, into the middle class, really, in, in Trinidad, a uh, black middle class in Trinidad, so he was a yeah, black colonial subject, um, won a scholarship, his dad was a teacher, um, and so won a scholarship to Queensville College, which is a very prestigious uh, school uh, on, on the island for mainly children of a white colonial elite, another some more privileged layers in society. So to, to, that was a great achievement uh, to, to, to win a scholarship too there as a, as a um, black student. Uh, then he ended up teaching back at the same institution for most of the 1920s, uh, teaching English and history, but he started to radicalize towards uh, nationalism, basically in c- case of the, um, self-government, West Indian self-government more broadly for the Caribbean. But at that time still within a framework of working for that within the British empire, um, he followed, became a sort of supporter of a guy, Captain Arthur Andrew Cipriani, who was an um, important Labour leader on the, on the island, part of uh, Trinidad Workingmen's Association. Um, and so James was a became a kind of Fabian socialist, uh, kind of liberal, um, but making a, an anti-colonialist in, in one sense, starting to make a, a case at a time when, after the Russian Revolution, after the First World War, um, you know these ideas of, of, of radical change and self-government nationalist liberation were suddenly a bit more realistic um, in terms of taking on the empires than they had been previously, even though those European empires like Britain and France were at their height. Um, and then James comes to Britain um, 19, in the 1930s, um, becomes a Marxist uh, around the Trotskyist movement, becomes a pan-Africanist activist. And I suppose that's really... If you think about James overall as you know in terms of how in one sense his importance really Ben is is a, is a Caribbean thinker. he was a, initially wanted to be a writer. He, he wrote a novel called Mintiali, which was later published in Britain in the 30s. So he's a kind of pioneer of a West Indian novel as well. but he's a writer who like many in that 1930s period with the Great Depression, uh, the rise of fascism, uh, uh, so on, radicalized, become move left, become political, Get involved in in anti-fascism and 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 also making the case, yeah, become become becoming a Marxist at the time of capitalism's greatest crisis uh, ever, really. Um, and so that's I suppose if you think about James, in some ways, that at that point in the 30s, his, his path is marked out. He's a Caribbean thinker, an anti-colonialist activist, um, and a uh, and an yeah an important important Marxist as he as he becomes in the 1930s. And it's his, write, his writings in the 30s. Um, most, there's two, I suppose, there's two key works um, in terms of his writings in the 30s World Revolution, which is a pioneering account of the Communist International, uh, its sort of rise and fall, uh, as James saw it coming from a Trotskyist perspective, um, and also Black Jacobins, which is perhaps, perhaps probably his single most important work. So, a work of great sort of history very really, historical work analysis of the greatest event in the whole history of the Caribbean but one of the greatest events in the history of the world really he writes this fantastic work Black Jacobins which is a uh both a, both a classic work of history but also aimed to be a weapon to kind of arm anti-colonial uh movements both struggling particularly Africa and Caribbean for national liberation for, for colonial liberation um and and it's yeah it's 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 it's, it's that work, as I say, that's, that's one of his most most famous, one of his most important contributions of Marxist, really. The, the Haitian Revolution up to that point had been a very, we can talk more about it, but it had been a very kind of neglected event with world history. James made it a kind of central event to, to world history. Then he goes to America, um, 1938, um, and it very, initially on a lecture tour uh, for the American Trotskyist movement, the Socialist Workers' Party, uh. As it, as it was then he goes and meets trotsky discusses theory and strategy and tactics of black liberation with trotsky in particular relating to the u.s struggle so they have some fascinating discussions about kind of uh you know potential tactics for what would then, but would then get taken up by the civil rights movement about sit-ins the ways they could um where you could tackle the kind of systemic institutional racism of the u.s um and in May, he also develops his uh he just starts to develop the, the theory of state capitalism for understanding Star, Stalinism, and um, the Soviet Union, but also more broadly, as as he working with people like Ray Danylowska and and uh, Grace Lee Boggs, um, within the Trotskyist movement initially, and then and then breaking with the American Trotskyist movement. Um, uh, of yeah, a, a sense of trying to make sense of our world, in uh, world as a whole, really. So they also have a critique of kind of American uh, Fordism, if you like. State, yeah. Um, and, and, and as well, after that theory of state capitalism, um, so that's James's probably the state state capitalism is probably most significant in some ways contribution as a, as a Marxist directly. I would say alongside his writings on Black history, uh, Black liberation struggles. Um, then yeah, I mean after about his, I mean um, yeah, I mean <laughs> I, I, the, the rest of his life is 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 one where he. Um, Eventually under McCarthyism in the U.S., rise of McCarthyism, he's forced to leave the U.S. in the 1950s, even though he's got a family, by then he's married an American woman, had a child, it's still not enough to keep, it, keep him in the, in the U.S. Um, so he returns to Britain, but then in the 50s, um, the, the rise of then the actual victory, the kind of victory of these national liberation struggles, decolonization as a process, both in Africa with people like Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, people like Eric Williams in Trinidad, um, for example. Basically, he, he becomes a supporter of, of those kind of movements, if you like, but in some ways it's a vindication of his work in the 30s uh, in the Pan-Africanist movement, alongside people like George Padmore and Yomo Kenyatta and people in Britain, uh, small groups of Pan-Africanists in Britain. Um, and and But he ends up having to break with those figures like Nkrumah and Williams because they... Um, become autocratic um, in the in the crew in, the, in um, Eric Williams's case, he sides with the U.S. in terms of the Cold War um, and so on, and so he has to break with with uh, with those figures. Ultimately, he becomes the rest of his life is kind of an independent kind of Marxist, really around kind of small groups in, in the U.S. in in Britain, small groups of followers in 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 the Caribbean, other countries. But um, he's essentially yeah. Then I suppose his final. Um, in some ways is, is, is of a really significant book, which we should mention, I suppose, which is, again, an interesting book for people who have never come across James to, to read is Beyond a Boundary, which is 1963, about crickets. So I don't know how well it would go down in America, in America necessarily, but in terms of understanding cricket uh, historically, so relating to sports to society more generally, how it evolved, but also particularly the way that the dynamics of, of, of playing cricket in the Caribbean uh, at the time of colonialism, how race and class uh, were, were, t- were, t- were tied up and yeah, played a critical role really in, in, in cricket in a fundamental role in all sorts of levels. Eventually, cam- you know, James was involved in a campaign to get a black captain of the West Indies cricket team in the 60s, uh, Frank Worrell, which was um, symbolically uh, long overdue, but symbolically important, another important victory in the, in the struggle against colonialism. Um, in a way, but, you know, it, it, in some ways, that's his other work, which, which means he's quite well known to sport fans of cricket, which I agree there might not be many in the US, but it's also a nice autobiographical work. It, it, it gives a sense, particularly very rich sense of James's early life in Trinidad, growing up, all the contradictions of colonialism and how he how began to become an anti-colonialist. Um, so that's a nice work for those wanting to get more into Caribbean history as well.
0: Well, thanks so much for that kind of uh, synopsis of, of his life. And I'd love to go a little bit more into the details. In, in particular, I'm interested in uh, his encounter with Marxism and, and, you know, when he began to immerse himself in theory, did it begin when he arrives in Britain in the 1930s? Or, you know, what are, what are his introductions to it in Trinidad itself? When he's mm. learning, is he is he a non-Marxist when he's learning in Trinidad and then reaches the UK and and is you know having an encounter with Marxism and Trotskyism? Mm.
1: That's a really yeah good question, really interesting question. I mean, it, you know, James, James had this very fine kind of education that's a kind of a pub, yeah kind of public school it, it, you know education. So not particularly they wouldn't exactly point me towards radical figures, but nonetheless you'd have a broad education. So it's not the case that Marx. James would have known about Marx and stuff. Obviously, the Russian Revolution happened in his... when he was growing up at at school. He would have, you know, figured that a little bit at all. You know, it had its impact. There were big strikes in Trinidad, workers' strikes in 1919 in particular. There was a mass strike that uh, swept across the kind of capital, port of Spain, involving dock workers and stuff like that. And many of those uh, workers involved in that that mass strike called themselves socialists. Um, uh, They they were also influenced by Marcus Garvey and and Garvey's ideas of pan-Africanism as well. So a kind of, I suppose, in in Trinidad, you could say the ideas, he was loosely, as I said, maybe a Fabian socialist, really. So he would have known about Marx, but not really read Marx, I don't think particularly. It would have been hard to get hold of Marx or any of the Marxist classics in Trinidad at all, I think, really. Uh, Although papers like the communist paper, Negro Worker, did um, probably circulate among some of the more militant workers, but I don't know if James would have really been around that, those kind of networks. Other, um, So I think it, it, it's safe to say he was a, he had a broad understanding of socialism on one level, called himself a socialist in a broad sense then, I would think, but a very much a kind of a, a, a reformist socialist. His group that he was, again, a supporter of, the Trinidad Men's Association, was linked to the British Labour Party. Um, and so very much a kind of parliamentary uh, socialism. They actually, you know, they, they had great hopes in a Labour government coming to uh, being in, in power in Britain, and actually that would be their, their way of getting colonial liberation, or, or at least some kind of autonomy within the British Empire, and some work rights for workers, and so on. You have to remember, workers in the 1920s in Trinidad didn't have a vote, you know, like, you know, uh, in Britain they would just got the vote by then. It was essentially a dictatorship, a small layer of richer people did but it was it was still very dictatorial as a a British colonial regime and so he I think in Trinidad he would have had some idea of Marx and, and the Russian Revolution but they'd have been people kind of in the sense of it's something that all you know a lot of students around that time a lot of James you know James didn't go to higher education but a lot of young intellectuals would have had a broad sense of who Lenin was who Trotsky was who Marx was, but they hadn't really, you know, he, he wouldn't really read it with any particular interest and wouldn't have been able to even get hold of the text. However, when he comes to Britain, 1932, uh, when he's in his early 30s, um, he, he, I think the book, the, the single most important book he reads is, is uh, Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution, which, which has just come out. Um, so Trotsky, you know, the organiser of the October insurrection, the founder of the Red Army, Uh, one of the leaders of the Russian Revolution, writes this this book in 1930, so it just comes out really. Um, And I think it's that work, but as James says, he kind of, he reads Trotsky, and again, he's not at that point, uh, he's not particularly invested in Trotskyism per se, he reads it, and he appreciates it as a great work of literature, and a great work of history. And and, but nonetheless, it's when he comes back. That's that's when he's up in. He briefly spends nine months or te- uh, ten months up in Nelson in in uh, northeast Lancashire with um, Leary Constantine, who's a cricketer, West Indian cricketer. And that, that's a, that's interesting because it takes him out of London. It takes him into a very kind of working class uh, cotton textile town. There's big strikes. There's strong trade unions there. And James has all sorts of discussions then within within people who are mainly. Around the Labour Party but also around the Independent Labour Party and they you know James goes to them and says to them, says to those workers look you know um, I, we hope you know we hope a Labour, a Labour government will, will, will bring us kind of you know better rights, better self-government, be- better uh, conditions in the West Indies and those workers have just been through the experience of 1929 to 31 Labour government under Ramsay Macdonald and they tell him no Labour's useless it won't do anything for you um, if you want to fight, you know, we've got, you've got to do these things yourselves. You've got you've got to organise yourselves. Uh, don't look to lab, a Labour government. They've they you know they've attacked us. Uh, they didn't do anything for us. You know, they cut that government collapsed in ignominy when they um, tried to force uh, workers to pay for the the, the crisis um, in terms of cutting uh, benefit for the unemployed and stuff. That, that government then they collapsed under under Ramsay in disgrace, and MacDonald himself goes and joins the Tories in a coalition and so those workers basically told him don't look to labor really at that point so he's having both interesting conversations he's learning a lot about labor movement socialism um and stuff and he's and he's reading trotsky and thinking about what trotsky's saying and trotsky's obviously giving a sense of marxism giving a sense of revolution there but then he i think it's really when he returns then to london after that and he he enters a very much more he's, he's then by then he's he's moved on a bit more politically he's less tied to labor uh looking to labor he's looking to more radical uh groups if you like and more radical anti-colonialists in london and there's a lot of um black activists who were who were uh activists in in uh in britain in london at that time who would have been around the communist party and so they said to him you know well trotsky's all right but we 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 don't think trotsky you know we don't. We don't think. Uh, we, we don't think Trotsky's really. He's moved away from, from Leninism, as they would see it. And so there's always discussions that James gets thrown into when he comes to London about what is Marxism. Is it, you know, it, do you do you look to, you know, is Trotsky right? Trotsky's been kicked out of the Soviet Union. Um, he's in exile now. Uh, you know what? What? Yeah, is Trotsky right about Lenin? Is Trotsky right about Marxism? And so on. And so James describes how he has to read. Marxism, Marxist classics to himself, he suddenly has to go on a crash course in sort of Marxism uh, study himself, really, independently. So he, st- he reads Stalin uh, to, to find out the other side of, of, the, of the argument and then decides that he needs to really read Lenin to properly understand the quarrel between Stalin and Trotsky. So he reads Lenin and then he realizes he has to go back to Marx and stuff. And, and so he independently, he, he at this time, and this is a 1933, you have to remember, Hitler's come to power. Um, you know, and uh, there's it's a real these are real critical questions really. Why has Hitler come to power? What was the role, you know? Did did the communist what could the communist party have done more? Why didn't they build a united front, for example, as Trotsky argued, between the Communist Party and the Social Democratic Party? Could that have stopped Hitler? And so on. So there's huge arguments, really critical arguments debating on the left at, at this time. Um and James independently, anyway, decides that. Trotsky's right, Trotskyism is is the way forward, particularly after his own experiences in France. He, he's, he's researched, he started researching the Haitian revolution in the, in the 30s and he goes to France. Um, and France in 1934, the far right are very strong. They're bloody strong right now, aren't they, in France. But they were very strong then and buoyed up because they, they'd had, um, you know, Hitler had just come to power the year before. They were very hopeful, the far right, that they could, they could follow straight away and, and take power. And James goes to France, and he's worried because he sees a bit like again a little bit today that the left are a little bit split all over the place on one level. When if they'd actually been a bit united in France like then and now, they could be more effective. And he sees a French left split, arguing with itself, uh, particularly the Communist Party saying that you can't make an alliance with the social, the Socialist Party, the, the, the more social democratic party at this point, and and. He fears, basically, another repeat like a lot of people of what's just happened in Germany, where the left failed to form a united front to stop fascism. And and then, but then he 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 describes how this you know this they all, the French left call this demonstration, uh, to the unions called demonstrations the communist unions and the social democratic unions called demonstrations. But then, instead of their usual animosity, they come together. This is February nineteen thirty four, and he he describes how that is a glorious moment where the. Actually, the dangers. You know, when they actually come together, workers themselves in that demonstration start singing "International Nale" and 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 so on. Actually, that is key. Is, is fascism was stopped in the streets, and he sees it in France in '34 uh, with that expression of workers' unity. And for him, that that kind of vindicates what Trotsky's been saying about the united front. It vindicates the urgent danger of fascism, and actually, and and the, and also the what he calls the kind of stupidity of the Communist Party uh, at that time, the very sectarian approach that they had. And the idea that from their point of view, revolution was on the agenda rather than counter-revolution. And, and, and so he returns to Britain in 34 and basically joins the Trotskyist movement straight on and after that, um, yeah, when he comes across some Trotskyists. And, and that's really, at that point, I, I think that period, 34, um, thirty-two to thirty-four, but, but particularly nineteen thirty-four is a year. It's probably the single most important year really in James's James life. Really, uh, he, his whole life is really shaped from that moment on. He he, you know, um, he, he decides you know needs to be a, uh, a a Marxist. He's seen the bankruptcy of capitalism. He's seen the danger of capitalism lurching into barbarism with fascism, and he's also seen workers' power, workers' unity on the on the streets in France. Uh, he's seen workers protesting in, in um, uh, he's seen mass, mass strike in Trinidad when he was younger, and he's seen workers' struggles in, in Britain, in, up in Nelson, in, in the Lancashire context. So he's got a sense of the power of the working class uh, when it comes together. Um, and so the combination of all those things, I think, in fact there's you can see a concrete alternative to capitalism in the workers' struggles, um, and, and the possible, yeah, but also the dangers if you don't build a socialist alternative. To what capitalism will do when you've got fascism starting to, you know, sweep across Europe.
0: Well, thanks so much. That was a great kind of explanation of his initial encounters with, with Trotsky and Trotskyism. I'm curious then to take it, uh, you know, a little further chronologically and ask. So you mentioned the meeting with Trotsky. I'm really interested in that. And in addition to that, um, when he arrives in the United States and he begins, you know, encountering Trotskyism in the US, uh, also you mentioned about his uh, collaboration with uh, Ryan Duyanovskaia and Grace Lee Boggs. So the Johnson Forest tendency. And with that, I'm, I'm interested in asking really about what he talks about when he meets Trotsky. And in addition, when he's forming this tendency, what his main theoretical disagreements with Trotsky are why he ultimately breaks with him as he does in, in state capitalism and in world revolution. Yeah, yeah.
1: thanks, yeah. Um, a lot less. So, i mean james comes to basically trotsky you know wants to meet james and because james is you know by by the 1938 he's one of the leading trotskyists in terms of and, and the, probably the, you know the only person who's significantly contributed theoretically in this book world, world revolution as well and 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 also he's aware that the american trotskyist movement has not Done enough. It can arguably never never do enough. But you can never do enough on this question. But the arguably has not done enough to relate to the question of, of black uh, liberation and, uh, and and race in general in the US when it's when that is such a critical uh, question. And so he's keen to for James to come over and, and you know do a luxury tour and also you know to meet James. And James is obviously it's a chance to meet his hero, you know, and this legendary figure. So James is obviously very keen. So yeah, they meet in. 1939 in in mexico um trotsky's house and they have yeah discussions over weeks over over two questions really one what's called the negro question at that time um uh but basically blacks yeah black oppression uh in the us and and um and and the ways around it uh and the way to counter it and um, it's 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 fascinating, really, because you know discussions. Um, you can read, yeah, people can you know read some of the transcripts themselves because it shows, um, essentially, yeah, they're kind of you know James has got James is, is kind of new to America, the American context. He's but so he's he's gone on a brief tour of kind of the American South. He's been sh- sh- he's got some sense of the real level high levels of racism, which are unlike anything he's ever experienced. Uh, in 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 britain or even in Trinidad um and and james really develops with with trotsky um this idea that really you need but you should recognize black self-organization is 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 key you should support marxist uh black black self-organization as a key 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 thing for fight uh for fighting racism um but also uh you you also, you I mean, I'll read the little quote if I may, because it's probably better. This is, comes from James's, uh, state statement, a revolutionary answer to the Negro problem in the United States, which was um, given in 1948. It builds on Lenin, really, but it also just comes out of really, it summarizes in many ways the discussions he's had with Trotsky, who's kind of in agreement with it. So he says, I'll quote, and obviously you use an anachronistic language because it's of, of the time. So he says, We say number one, that the Negro struggle, the independent Negro struggle has a vitality and a validity of its own, but it has deep historic roots in the past of America and in present struggles. It has an organic political perspective along which it is traveling to one degree or another. And everything shows that at the present time it is traveling with great speed and vigor. We say number two, this independent Negro movement is able to intervene with terrific force upon the general social and political life of the nation, despite the fact that it's waged under a banner of democratic rights, and it is not led necessarily either by the organized labor movement or the Marxist party. We say number three, and this is most important, it's able to exercise a powerful influence upon the revolutionary proletariat, but it has got a great contribution to make the development of the proletariat in the United States. And it is in itself a constituent part of the struggle for socialism. Um, And those kind of writings uh, about, yeah, championing kind of black liberation, seeing it as kind of a something that you know contributes itself uh, to to the struggle for, struggle for socialism in a sense, and bit building on Lenin's idea of basically you know you support national liberation struggles even if they're not led by social you know socialists or whatever. Think about Lenin on Ireland and the Easter Rising. You know you support those those struggles, whatever the leadership you know, uh, kind of kind of uh, unconditionally, but but kind of. Um, uh but 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 then but then kind of critically within that. But it's a sense, a sense of, I suppose, you know, most writings particularly enabled the Marxist movement. I'm not saying it did it perfectly. To things like uh, Malcolm X later on for stuff. At a time when most uh, other organisations on the left had a you know quite a dismissive line to someone like Malcolm X. Some even saw him as a kind of black fascist, essentially unable to understand that really someone like that is on a journey, is on a, you know, so it's actually, uh, through his experiences, Malcolm X obviously was moving, very, you know, closer to, rev- you know, revolutionary, revolutionary politics. He was a revolutionary to it. And it also uh, meant other groups, for example, would um, like the League for Revolutionary Black Workers more um, in Detroit and things like that. They were obviously inspired by sort of James's writings as well. Um, later on. So it enabled, yeah, it it was much better than basically the left had really up to that point, I would say, but what James was able to do to the American SWP, pushing it to take the question of race seriously and and to try and organise. And I mentioned earlier, we had discussions about tactics as well around, you know, tackling with sit-ins potentially against uh, Jim, yeah, sort of Jim Crow uh, and so on. So, uh, which would be taken up. Um, They were very, you know, it's, it's abstract on one level, quite small, James wasn't, because he was under a, uh, a pseudonym in America, he was under the name J.R. Johnson. Hence, you get the Johnson Forest tendency with red and forest. But you know he wasn't because he was there. He had to avoid the attentions of the state, the American state, the F- FBI, and so on, because he was there legally, really, as an immigrant. So he couldn't play a role, you know, as easily directly as an activist, if you like, in the in the US in that way, um, unfortunately. But he. he yeah, as a theorist and stuff, he, you know, he wrote he wrote a lot on race in the US in that
0: period. I was curious about the fact of CLR James' transition to focusing more on uh, not necessarily just African revolutions, but Pan African revolts in general. And mm. so he, it seems to me, like later on, he takes more of an approach focused on. Of course, he writes Black Jacobins and focuses on Haiti, mm. and then he he has a text Pan African Revolts, which is looking more into. Uh, the conditions on the African continent, um, in addition to the situation of of African Americans, mm, mm. it, it was interesting to me to find out that Walter Rodney was a student of CLR James, mm. and I wonder how if you if you know anything about their kind of interaction and whether they influenced mm. one another because, of course, Walter Rodney would pick up that subject, and it seems like they had you know similar kind of engagement over uh, over that subject and and also maybe a little on the previous one they. You know, Walter Rodney has a text on on his opinions on the Russian Revolution and it seems to engage with CLR James a little bit. So mm. yeah, I don't know. That's kind of a, a like multiple subjects, but mm. I'm I'm really interested in their interaction and just CLR James transitioning into focusing more on Pan-African Revolution later on. Mm. Thanks.
1: No, really good. Yeah, really interesting. Um question on on um on on James's I mean James's Becomes a Pan-Africanist in the thirties, really. Period. So he's he's already engaged meeting African students in in London. People like Yomo Kenyatta, as I mentioned earlier, from Kenya, um, and uh, and working alongside people like George Padmore. He's you know involved in uh, in in all sorts of Pan-Africanist organisations in 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 London in the thirties, like Interna- International African Friends of Ethiopia, around camp- campaigning in defense of Ethiopia against Mussolini's war. Um, there. He's involved he's in the International African Service Bureau, which works uh, ultimately. Pays, but ultimately, James has moved to America, but it, it paints the way for the Fifth Pan African Congress in Manchester. But Padmore organizes alongside uh, Kwame Nkrumah, W. B. Du Bois comes across uh, from the U.S. to that Amy Ashwood Garvey, uh, first wife of, of Marcus Garvey's, there um, a whole range of range of Pan Africanists. So really, in some ways, you know, J- James is. Involved, and he writes that book, History of Negro Revolt. Later, published as History Pan African Revolt in the nineteen thirties and nineteen thirty eight, same years Black Jacobins. And as you say, it covers African struggles, class struggles, particularly, um, like for example, Zambian copper belt uh, miners' uh, struggles uh, under colonial rule. Uh, there, so it's a you know James is is, is interest in in. You know, in Pan-African in African Liberation, you know, goes back to the 30s and that you know, you probably trace it back to Trinidad on some levels uh, as well. But um, I think it's really, yeah, as you say, it's it's um, once you get um, uh, after the Second World War, 1950s period, it's, it's you know, Nkrumah Skarner is a breakthrough. actually Nkrumah's, James's little book, Nkrumah and the Ghana Revolution, has just been uh, published in edition um yeah, Duke university press which um because it's been hard quite hard to get hold of i think um uh, and until recently and matt gives that's an interesting book folks interesting james's take on Afri- on Africa and and um yeah and, and and what he thought about those those kind of struggles really he um says he goes and visits ghana himself uh, he gets invited to the independence day ceremonies in, in 57 um and and padmore his great Trinidadian compatriot, someone who'd been, you know, formerly involved in the Communist International uh, in the late twenties and thirties, uh, as a leading figure there, editor of the Negro Worker and stuff. But someone who then broke and broke from the Communist International, um, and, and become more of independent Pan Africanist. Those ideas, Pan African socialism, expressed by Padmore, coming out of that Fifth Pan African Congress. So those those ideas are very kind of, you know, uh, you know, widespread in, in the fifties, sixties period. Um, and symbolized you know hopes in the, in the and um but also reflect to some extent to people like namumba and, and so on in, in Congo um elsewhere so James um because yeah James by the 60s um James is because of the, the failures of people like nakruma actually uh by then James is and his break with Eric Williams back in Trinidad where he's gone back and 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 worked with Williams for a bit as well means James by the 60s is Trying to, um, uh, you know, regain a bit more of his Marx, Marxist politics again, trying to think, look, like, you've got to be clear on Marxism again uh, and, and what that actually means in this new context, given, you know, we've had these post colonialism, you know, we've had these great victories in the struggle against colonialism now, but now, you know, actually, what are the struggles that are going to take place once you've got independence, really? How are you going to get working class, uh, you know, uh, an actual meaningful? make make decolonization uh make post-colonialism a meaningful thing you know rather than just flag independence where one flag comes down another flag comes up and you have a kind of an, a new elite forming that's that's in many ways you know either, either you know complicit with kind of western capitalism western multinationals um or the cold war um or it's just becomes you know, highly autocratic and, and removed from kind of work, workers uh interests and stuff and so it's in that context that um, Walter Rodney, who's someone who, it's um, been a student uh, at University of West Indies in in, in Jamaica. Uh, I think, and that's where Walter Rodney first comes across the Black Jacobins in the library. I think there, of um, the University of West Indies, and you know reads it and is kind of blown, you know, blown away uh, like many other young black radicals were by by Black Jacobins. And and so when Rodney comes to London, when I think he's um, you know doing his PhD, I think, and and so on in the sixties. He he's part of a little study circle in London of black, young black radicals from the Caribbean, uh, in particular, but um, other yeah um, other places as well. Um, who, who who would gather at um, the house of um, C.L.R. James and, and and Selma James, uh, and they'd have these kind of Marxist classes and stuff. And so Rodney is there as a kind of student. You know, in some ways. Uh, Learning, but Rodney himself is someone who, because he's had his own experiences of struggle in uh, University of West Indies and so on, is someone who is not—he's never exactly a complete, you know, uh, devotee of James exactly and James's exact take on Marxism. You know, Rodney's someone who's reading it is really impressed by James, but is also, you know, coming at it things from his own kind of, you know, more independent perspective as well really. So he's someone who's inspired, inspired by, by James. There's a really great essay if people are uh, interested in a little book, probably quite hard to get hold of now in the 80s called CLR James's, his His life and work edited by Paul Buell. It's a really excellent introduction to James. It's got full of little essays by people who knew James closely. It's got an essay uh, there by Rodney, I think on, um, on, on, on James a bit, but on James's writings on, on Africa, in some ways, on on Pan African revolt in particular, and that that essay gives you a very good sense, in some ways, of uh, yeah, what what Rodney got from from James, I think, um, but also some of the slight tensions that were starting to emerge, in some ways, actually. Um, and there's new, you know, there's new, there's a lot of new work being done on Rodney, you know, recent years. Rightly, he's you know, he's, he's he's finally getting, you know, the uh, some of the you know, attention that, that he deserved as, as a uh, black intellectual. I mean, I'll just point to one book, uh, Leo Zelig's new book on Walter Rodney's revolution. But I think what you get, and I think this comes through one Leo's work from what I've heard him when I've heard him talk is, is actually in some ways Le- Rodney, because Rodney had a focus on the working class and class struggles in Africa in that 60s period in particular and 70s period. Actually, Rodney, in some ways, builds on the very best of James, really, in that sense, that kind of a, a kind of more materialist, kind of class perspective at a time when James, by the 60s, is pulled in all sorts of directions uh, by these movements. He hasn't got much of a group around him, if you like, to bounce ideas off necessarily so much. He's increasingly a bit isolated himself. and And so he can, James is sometimes uh to be honest gets yeah gets excited by by the leaders of 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 these kind of struggles rather than keeping his eye firmly on the kind of the class uh relations and the class dynamics if you like and and gets carried away by the leaders pronouncements if you like rather than looking at what's going on on the ground which is what, what he does much better in his earlier work in the 30s i would say um so but but you know james never moved you know james Always has some sense of that, but Bodney has a much more, it seems to me, consistent sense of that. Going in, you know, in some ways, but is it is you could say in some ways it builds on the very best of James and 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 um in some ways advances ahead of James, actually, probably possibly in that period in terms of African class struggles, if you like, in 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 post-colonial uh Africa at the time. Um so um yeah but but as you say you know the the relationship between this is is fascinating and um and james said you know they both i think retained you know enormous respect for each other in their work you know uh i would say um although you know they did have differences of you can also you know unpick some of the some of the differences and some of the slight you know tensions in their work for example how europe underdevelops africa brilliant work uh you know, in many ways, you know, f- fantastic work, but it's telling, for example, that Rodney essentially buys into um, an idea of the European working class being by, kind of bought off by the uh, profits of, of imperialism, basically, in a, in a very sort of traditional Orthodox Leninist framework, if you like, but uh, the, the working class is somehow in Europe can, can't really be a part, you know, part of the solution in the same way. Um, whereas James, if you look at his writings on on in later years on, for example, work, workers movements in in and um, shop stewards movement in England, for example, uh, particularly, you know, James always remembered, the you know, his whole long experience of, of the British working class going back to the 30s, going back to those days in Nelson, where he said, you know, um, it was the working class that taught him about socialism. You know, he he was he was supposedly the great socialist. He learned his socialism from talking to workers in in, in Nelson. Uh in Lancashire, and he remembered, he always pointed to the sense that for him, workers uh in Britain retained a revolutionary potential. Now, you know, he, he would say, look, it's not surprising some of them hold, you know, racist ideas and so on. These are the ideas, it would be it would be unsurprising if they didn't you know, in many ways, the dominant ideas of, you know, ruling, you know, society, the ideas of ruling class. They're going to be, it'd be unsurprising if British workers didn't buy into some of the nationalism, some of the racism and so on. However, he said, look, there's always this other revolutionary tradition among the British working class. You go back to charters and you go back uh, earlier uh, to the English Revolution, which James was always quite excited about. And so because he had that sense of revolutionary history, that long durée. Partly I think because of his reading of Hegel as well, James always re- retained a kind of optimism uh, where others you know in optimism and revolution really in the ideas of revolution and revolutionary possibilities uh, at a time when particularly in later years, much of the left started to give up and their hopes on revolution basically and particularly kind of workers' revolution in, in the west um, James interestingly would because of his experiences when you had mass class struggles in the 30s in Europe, you know, you had the Spanish Civil War, you had the, you know, the Popular Front government being formed on the back of mass strikes in France in 1936. Um, You had great moments as well in the 1930s of of revolutionary hope in Europe, you know, and uh, James would always be able, you know, because he'd seen it for himself on one level, those mass struggles in Europe among workers could never... um, completely right off European working class in a way Rodney, I think, perhaps because he never saw those struggles himself, you know, was more prone to do. So there are differences as well. James better on the European working class, Rodney better on the African working class, maybe.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I guess my last question would be on on something you just noted. You mentioned uh, his work on Hegel a little bit, and I think that's also been something that people have been... Uh, not necessarily like rediscovering, but, you know, it's it's kind of emerged a little bit more um, his work on Hegel and Lenin. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about his perspective on dialectics. He, he I think, uh, from what I understand, was very, very much committed to this idea. And he also considered himself a Leninist um, in spite of not necessarily agreeing with Lenin on a lot of things politically, but perhaps he agreed with him on, on his reading of Hegel. Um, yeah. so yeah, I'd be really interested in, in that and, you know, what yeah. would he have to say about, about Hegel and Lenin?
1: First mm. fascinating. I'm actually just reading a book, um, which is, um, just been published called, um, Raya Donovska's Intersectional Marxism.
0: Uh-huh.
1: It's an edited collection. Um, and that goes, I mean, that explores obviously the differences that came out between Donovska and, um, and James over over Hegel ultimately but nonetheless um, uh, gives a sense of why they they turned to Hegel really. I mean in some ways um, you know just as you know Lenin turned to to Hegel during the First World War Mm -hmm. uh, to really try and grapple a real deep moment of crisis you know um, where uh, you have a kind of inter-imperialist war Going on, raging, and actually the number of people, the number of people who are Marxists holding on to a kind of properly internationalist perspective on this, in terms of anti-imperialism, are really quite small and can feel a bit marginalised. And that was certainly the case in you know the, the number of people that you know who took a real clear uh, internationalist position uh, opposing the First World War on the, on the socialist left was really sm- very small indeed. And Lenin, one of them, felt very isolated and in that moment of kind of dis- despair, really, when you know it seemed like something like the German Social Democratic Party, that has been this great hope for Marxism, being this mass party of uh, Marxism, how that could then vote for war, uh, a war um, and just show, show that it could be this complete negation of everything it's supposed to have stood for in terms of international principles. That sense of crisis for, for Marxist movement at that moment uh, and have turned to turn to, to Hegel, Lenin's turn to Hegel, um, and, and the fact that those, those writings of Lenin on Hegel had just been, I think, newly uh, tra- pu- translated and published, I think, in Russian for the first time um, in the 1930s and then was starting to be um, yeah, translated again in, by, the, by, the, by the time of the uh, Second World War and so on. So they're, they're reading, they're getting sense this is something that had been quite hidden. No one really knew that Lenin read, read Hegel. Really, that much. It wasn't something that was that much talked about at that point. Suddenly, they, they discover this, this aspect of learning reading Hegel and this moment crisis, and suddenly think, right, how, do, you know, let's go back to this. And for them, it was this kind of, goes back to this sense of absolute negation, but what the Russian Revolution represented, this something being the hope of the world, workers, you know, taking power, workers and peasants, you know, struggle, great hope, hope of socialist revolution uh, taking place, had become, from their point of view, Counter-revolution, the complete negation of that by by the late 30s, and trying to grapple with that, what they saw as a kind of counter-revolution within the revolution that they saw in Spain and the Spanish Civil War as well. Um, but that they found Hegel uh, again, sudden someone that was that sense of uh, contradiction, that sense of um, a sense of the need for, you know, what you get from Hegel is a sense of, you know, kind of revolutionary, uh, there's something revolutionary, because Hegel himself had been, you know, he'd lived through the French Revolution, you know, that had been a major event in his life. He couldn't, Hegel couldn't visualise history in a sense as completely smooth, you know, sort of something kind of, sort of like smooth thing, you know. He understood it's full of crisis, full of, uh, tens- you know, tensions, and something new emerges, if you like. And so they turned uh, to Hegel really to try and get a sense of what had happened to the Russian Revolution, and Marxism more generally, um, but also to try and get a sense of actually revolutionary potentials as well, revolutionary, um, what what potentials for for something completely new to emerge there. Lenin, you know, highlighted things move through leaps, you know, and if you read through Lenin's, it's been just long term read through this But if you read through Lenin's um you know notebooks when he writes that you know things that he underlines so are these things about leap, you know, leaps you get these, you know, things happen suddenly. History doesn't just evolve smoothly. There's sudden moments of crisis, sudden moments of potential, you know, Lenin, you know, put it, you know, there's there's times when um you know whole decades happen in, in a very space of a very short period of time, suddenly things can move and that, Hegel, reading Hegel gave him a better sense I think of uh, of, of, of that kind of uh, rather, rather, yeah, rather revolutionary, they're looking for kind of a theory of revolution really at, at a time when Marxism is, it seems to them in crisis um, uh, and, and history, you know, it's the very midnight of the century from there, you know, in terms of world history, fascism's um, uh, sweep swept across Europe. Um, you know they don't know about the Holocaust yet. That's about to come out. Uh, they kind of in a similar moment of Indian imperialist War, major crisis for the movement and very dark, you know, dark times of despairing times. On one level, you might think they're looking for hope and, and hopes for yeah. That, 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 the, that, the Revo- that the Second World War actually can end like the First World War did. You know, still with a wave of revolution. And, and socialist revolution coming out of it, like like the like, like the first world war did. So they still hold on to that. Yeah, they're still holding on to the similar hopes. But it seems, yeah, it's a very dark time as well. So um, I don't know. Yeah, I I would, um, yeah, I would, um, I would say it's broader. I've just final point. I would say it's it's their they're right, they're reading of Hegel is also akin with their reading of the early Marx as well. They do in this period, you know, they're, they're going back to the Marxist classics as well. They're going back, you know, Marx's writings on uh, alienation, his economic and philosophical manuscripts have also just been translated. And they do some of the first translations back into English. They're going back to trying to understand a more uh, humanist sense of Marx as well. A sense of Marxism that's not just concerned um, with um dry economic dry political economy, but a Marxism that's um actually rooted in real human beings' experiences and, and writings on uh yeah alienation and potential for yeah for actual human beings to fl- to kind of creatively kind of flourish themselves under 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 socialism how how capitalism under holds back that and 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 that's the sort of one of the greatest crimes of capitalism really but it it uh it's, so degrades it so degrades uh worker uh, as experienced work, worker at the point of production but um it, it 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 stops that kind of potential human for human flourishing for, um for a better a clearer sense of um uh you yeah, know what what, what the potentials for humans to, to to achieve and to themselves um uh collectively um so it's a it's part of a kin with the work of going back to as you say like lenin early marx um and hegel it's all part of the kin of, of trying to look at class going back to classical marxism to try and make sense of a very yeah crisis as they see it that, that the world is in um and and the need to yeah try and try and yeah um renew marxist theory again um so yeah, that's a really very project. I would say one thing as well, one thing one final thing, I mean, uh that, that also I've just been reading really interestingly is, is James's work on on if you're interested in America, American uh, he writes a little book on American civilization, which is kind of um an uncompleted work, but Mariners, Renegades, and Castaways is a very interesting study of Herman Melville's Moby Dick. And in there, if you read that, I think that in some ways is one of a most relevant uh, books actually of James for this period right now, in some ways we're living through because it, he shows how within this framing of the story of Moby Dick, where you've got a, a captain on a whaling ship that develops a kind of maniacal sense of pursuing this whale. It seems, it seems, you know, he takes that as a kind of way of trying to critique the whole of capitalist civilization in many ways and, and how capitalism under uh, essentially is leading humanity to disaster. Is um, which, if you look at the climate crisis now, and James does touch on humanity's relationship to nature very powerfully, actually, in Mariners, Renegades, and Castaways, the way in which a very instrumental uh, pursuit for just accumulation of you know for accumulation's sake, how capitalism, completely out of control, uh, is taking humanity off a cliff. It's full of an analysis of of what of crisis of catastrophe that's coming, basically. Unless you make this break with capitalism and actually the hope, he says, lies with the crew of the, uh, the, the ship, the Pico um, in Moby-Dix. It's the, they are the, you know, the wretched of the earth in some ways. They are the, um, the very symptomatic though, of a multinational uh, working class uh, is, is, is how Melville describes the crew. In, in some ways on the ship of the Pico and James's hope like, you know, lies in those in those Mariner's Renegades and Castaways, lies in that, the crew themselves on the ship taking control before it's too late. So I would say actually in some ways for the period of real crisis in terms of climate that we're living through, Mariner's Renegades and Castaways is actually a work of James that can really speak in many ways to us uh, today very powerfully um, about about uh, um, about how um, if, we, if we're going to try and have a sustainable future on the planet, uh, you actually need kind of workers', uh, workers power and, and workers' revolution um, uh, against that. So um, that would be, I'd say, one book that I haven't mentioned, but I would say is also comes out of that American period, um, uh, where it's all James, yeah, but also gives an interesting sense of James's Marxism. Uh, and it was also just a fascinating work of, of literary criticism, per se. It's got some of the most powerful passages uh, you know, I've, I think I can, I've read of James. as just of the be- sheer beauty of James's writing. You know, it's worth remembering James was a writer. You know, Trinidad, he wrote this novel. He, his writing um, is alongside, you know, his, 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 his Marxism, I think, is, also makes him as a, a Marxist, particularly, you know, he's a joy and a pleasure to read, really, in many ways. Uh, just the style uh, of writing and the power of it. Yeah.
0: Thanks so much. Um, and I, I have heard of uh, Mariners, uh, mm. Renegades, and Castaways before. And thanks yeah. for that recommendation. I guess my my last question would be um, sort of sort of a short one, but just in in summary, you know, mm. for someone today, uh, what like what is the relevance of? You were mentioning a little bit of. Relevance of reading CLR James mm-hmm. as a Marxist, as an anti-colonial writer, um, and in addition to as you were talking about trying to come up with a theory of revolution, mm-hmm. think about him as a as a thinker from the global south and writing in many ways and contributing to yeah. revolution, sort of in a universal way, but it, but in a lot of his writing um, on Africa or on Haiti sort of contributing to a a, a reframing of conversations of, re- of revolution around the Haitian mm. revolution. Mm. So yeah, that, that would be my last question.
1: Mm. Yeah, thank you. It's a big one. I mean, James is obviously one of the most, probably the most significant Marxist that Caribbean, uh, you know, has ever produced in one level. So his, his writings in relation to the Caribbean, if anyone interested in Caribbean history or black history more generally, James is, Legacies as 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 a as a Marxist in terms of his writings about Caribbean, both past but but also kind of in the 20th century with anti-colonial struggles with um post-colonial regimes. There, um, all you know have a lot to very you know rich stuff to offer. I mean, it's telling. Like his writings, for example, on the plantation um, in in Black Jacobins, for example, way he saw. Uh, the kind of the way that the plantation, the slave plantations were um, in many ways, the, the most advanced forms of capitalism for their time. And therefore the enslaved themselves, when they organized uh, on them, acted a bit like a kind of proto-proletarian. Um, but that sense of understanding plantations, for example, again, you know, speaks to us, you know, today when people are theorizing around climate change, and the origins of that and periodizing that through going back to seeing the, Role of uh, um, uh, role played by European colonialism in terms of uh, devastating effects on the on the um, uh, on the Caribbean in, in terms of slavery, obviously, but also the sense you have monocultural production there, soil erosion and stuff. Now, the way that you know in the world today, global warming means that Caribbean islands are going to be some of the hardest hit by uh, catastrophic climate change. Um, you know, it really is rebellion or extinction, really in many ways. Writ, you know, writ large in most re- in most regions. Um, so I'd say, in terms of the Caribbean, James will always have a pla- you know a special place, if you like, for those people from that region um, because of his profound connections there and his writings there. And you know, as I say, the, the Haitian Revolution his work on the, on the uh, Black Jacobins about the Haitian Revolution. You know, which is the greatest event in the history of the West Indies, one of the greatest world you know revolutions in world history. Is, is a key part of his legacy and, and it's foundational for understanding the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, the Haitian Revolution in many ways. So that, that work, you know, will, will always be a, a key work. And it's also, as I say, a theory. You touched on your other point about colonial revolution. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a handbook in many ways for colonial revolution, it's full of really rich lessons, you know, in terms of anti-imperialism as well for imperialism today. If you think about, you know, um, Russia's war on, on Ukraine, for example, today, you know, it's full of rich lessons. If you want to defeat an imperialist power, the ways to do it and the ways not to do it, you know, don't rely on other imperial powers coming in to try and get help, you know, try and defeat these powers yourselves, you know, I mean, look to your own strength, look to trying to make uh, common cause with Russian working class, for example, uh, here, you know, full of rich anti-imperialist lessons, uh, you know, but but can still, you know, speak in many many ways in different contexts. Um, So, uh, i would i would say yeah I would, I would i would say that i mean in terms of um yeah i mean more generally i suppose his you know his his contribution on his theory contribution theory of state capitalism is also a you know significant contribution um but again it's going to be contested isn't it because different marxists are gonna you know that's something to engage with but you know jay you know from, uh, from the time he lived in the 20th century, that question was a key question in terms of understanding, grappling with Stalinism. You know, James made it it kind of important, I think, contributions to developing the theory of um, what Hal Draper once called socialism from below. You know, the idea that actually socialism, Marxism, is about the emancipation of a working class, you know, self-emancipation of working class, you know, the sense that it's workers themselves that have to liberate themselves. It's the uh you know it's the oppressed that have to be the ones that's central to fighting against you know uh, oppression as well um and and that sense of self-emancipation is at the heart of i think a lot you know james's writings it gives you a real powerful sense of um i think all of his writings in a way but you know really you can't have um kind of hopes uh, that some great leaders whether some social democratic leader um, or some kind of st- state machine is going to come and and deliver socialism for you it has to be something workers and, and, and others do for themselves they have to be central to that themselves and i think james all of james's writings speak infused with that that real sense of socialism from below so um i would yeah i, w- I would i would probably say that those are his kind of contributions um, it, but his whole life i' just trying to mention i mean there's a new book that's come out um i was going to mention this yeah by john williams john L. williams called clr james A life beyond the boundary it doesn't get into marx's theory and revolutionary theory perhaps at the level some would some would like but if you want a a one volume thing new biography that's come out but really you want to know what james was doing in whatever year you want to know what his relationships were with others people like you know rodney it's a brilliant um guide to that it's kind of full of some fantastic research you know, you know, for example, what was James's response to Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech in 1968? You can go, you know, you can go to the book and you can find it or at least be pointed towards, you know, the kind of thing that James would say and be encouraged to actually go and read James yourself uh, for yourself. I think I'd say read James for yourself would be um, another thing people, people should, you know, do because it takes you on a journey. You know, it takes you to the Caribbean. It takes you to Herman Melville's Moby Dick. It takes you to black struggle, black history. Uh, past, present, and future. It takes you, as you say, to um, things like the Ghana uh, Revolution. Um, it takes you to, um, what, what, you know, all manner of qu- cultural questions. James was an incredibly cultured Marxist. He wrote on, you know, uh, Michelangelo, wrote on Picasso, uh, you know, wrote on ancient Greeks. He was inspired by, uh, by uh, you know, some of the forms of democracy, uh, very limited democracy, we would say, around slaves. Slaves didn't have democracy, women didn't. Have democracy. Because, like, it's inspired by what small communities could do and the, the origins of democracy and democratic kind of forms of, of, of government. Um, every cook can govern is his little pamphlet he wrote then. That's also a nice little thing to read. And it's, it's taking a quote from Lenin, every cook can govern, um, which really sums up, I think, James's whole, yeah it's a it's a key phrase for understanding the whole of james really in many ways that sense of a uh, belief um in ordinary workers um, and their abilities and and capabilities uh, to change the world is is there in james really and um it rem- why, why like him like many other Marxists remain inspirations i think yeah Ross.
0: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. There's so much more to say about yeah. CLR James, but I have to go, but I really appreciate it. I'd love to stay in touch as well. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah, And yeah, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. And anyway,
1: you take care. Thanks again. <laughs>